Welcome to a bonus episode of United Ireland on the Uber Files. Simon Carswell is the public affairs editor of the Irish Times. Um, you will have heard an extensive conversation with him on a recent episode of Byline that we did. Worth going back to that if you haven't listened yet. And uh, Simon, along with Arthur Beasley of the Irish Times, published a series of extraordinary stories as part of a broader collaborative investigation into the lobbying influence of Uber. Uber, of course, being the kind of pseudo taxi company and linchpin of the so-called gig economy that has, quote unquote, disrupted that sector in multiple countries. The consequences of Uber's impact are plenty from embedding the concept of the gig economy into people's daily journeys and commutes around the world to fraud arguments and legal wrangling over labor laws to taxi driver protests. Its method of domination um, and embedding itself in a particular jurisdiction has been underpinned by lobbying and that old Facebook adage of move fast and break things. What is now known as the Uber files have shed light on the proximity of lobbyists to government officials and politicians themselves with unique aspects in the Irish context, which we will explore on this bonus episode. Simon, I'm sure you're busy writing, editing, publishing, getting things past lawyers and so on. So I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out to discuss this. Thanks very much for having me on. How did this information come to light? Well, the information came to light. We now can say this and then we know now that there's a whistleblower involved. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Mark McGann and interesting from an Irish perspective, he's from um, from Ireland. He uh, was born in Longford and grew up in Roscommon. He's 52 years old. He's a career lobbyist and he worked for Uber in a critical period for the company between 2014 and 2016. He was the company's chief lobbyist and he was in charge of pushing the company's agenda with government figures, members of cabinets across Europe, regulators, state officials, trying to push open the door for Uber in Europe. Um, Uber's business model wasn't permitted in many European countries because of a heavily the heavily regulated taxi uh, industry across Europe. And uh, uh, McGann was hired by Uber to break through that. Um, Uber, which was run then by its chief executive, Travis Kalnick, was a very aggressive company. It was about trying to change business models. The whole Uber business model is based on anyone with a private car can essentially share that car by signing up to the apps, doing some kind of simple background checks, and then it can start picking up customers and make money from the gig economy. Um, McGann has had uh, has gone through a period of, of buyer's remorse when it comes to Uber. He is looking back on his time with Uber and is, has found that he, what he said and what he uh, did on behalf of the company, he says is wrong. He said, we sold a lie. We told people that drivers would see the benefits of Uber and economies would see the benefit of Uber when in fact it undercut drivers' interests and it undercut economies that it wasn't, as they said, it wasn't, it wasn't for the benefit of taxi industries and the regulations that, these would, that this would be changed. We'll get into the kind of, I suppose it is grubby in, in many ways, the kind of the lobbying part in a second. But this is a international story, really. What is the process of collaboration that happens with you guys when there's a consortium of journalists involved looking at multiple jurisdictions? Well, we are the Irish media partner for the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And um, I signed up 
on behalf of the Irish Times with the ICIJ, which is Washington based. When I was US correspondent based in the US Capitol in 2013, they had an interesting offshore uh, uh, accounts and offshore records investigation at that time, which I was drawn into. And I, I formed a relationship with the ICIJ and with Jared Ryle, who was a journalist originally from, from Ireland, living in Washington. And we've been collaborating with the ICIJ for the best part of a decade now. My colleague, Colm Keena, has been very actively involved in working with the ICIJ and laterally then myself and Arthur Beasley, and my colleague, are working on these Uber files. The process is very interesting. It's very collaborative. Uh, we work through a very significant and encrypted and very highly secure system of looking at records. So the records are shared. And the deal is that you collaborate with all of these other media outlets. And it's an incredible journalistic exercise. And at a time when journalistic resources are, are, are under huge pressure, this is an extraordinary resource to have. So you might get a record to do with France or the Netherlands or the US or Australia. And then through this network, you can contact journalists in those countries and say, listen, we're not quite sure what this means for, for you and your country, but you'll obviously have a better understanding of the context, what happens there. Here's the record. Can you go off and check? So, for example, I had someone in Washington last week contact me to say, we're trying to get a response from Enda Kenny, the former Taoiseach. Uh, could you put something to him and get a comment back from him? So obviously I'd be in a better position to be able to do that than somebody in Washington. So that's the way the exchange works. For this particular project with the Uber files, the Guardian in London was critical in this. The Guardian basically uh, did all the contact with Mark McGann. Mark McGann came to the Guardian. The Guardian said, well, this is a fascinating international story. This is a perfect a story, a perfect investigation to share with the ICIJ in Washington and to bring other countries involved, because at the core of this story was Mark McGann and Mark McGann's activities at a European and international level. He was doing business across Europe, in Russia, in the Middle East, in Africa. So the ICIJ is a perfect network to be able to work a story like this through. So let's talk about the Irish stuff then. Obviously, as you've outlined there, it's a global story with um, regional uh special specialities i suppose in terms of the regional details what are the irish angles what was uber doing in ireland who was it seeking to influence what politicians and officials was it tapping to exert that influence well there are parts of the irish story that are very similar to what's happening internationally the company was aggressively trying to break into the irish market like it was into other countries the big difference with the irish story is that it was largely unsuccessful in Ireland. The period that we're looking at in particular relates to 2014 and 2017, but in an Irish context, the period from the latter half of 2015 to the first half of 2016 was critical. Uh, the, the company was very actively lobbying the government in, in the run-up to the February 2016 general election. And what it was trying to do was, it was trying to break into the Irish market, but it was trying to run what it wanted to do was a pilot scheme in Limerick. Um, and what's interesting about the uh, attempts to get into a regional city was the we've seen from the internal Uber records that a lobbyist within the company said, what if I try, what if we tried to set up in a regional city as the first step to getting into Ireland? And they actually say in internal records, we could get political leverage by doing this, by going into a region and the political leverage being that maybe we could break through these regulations that exist in Ireland, which protect the taxi industry. They needed those to go for the business model to work in Ireland. Now, ultimately, it was unsuccessful. The regulator, the National Transport Authority, came back in June 2017 and said, listen, we can't have your business operating here. We can't have a regulated taxi sector and an unregulated 
cab hailing uh, system or cab hailing uh, network like you would have with Uber. So the regulator said no, uh, ultimately. But in the period up to that point, you have this intense lobbying by Uber uh, of government figures, of civil servants, of state agencies trying to put pressure on uh, the Irish state basically to open up to Uber. And it's the colour around some of the interactions. Uh, we do know that Uber was very actively lobbying government at the time. We have the official returns that have been there for the past five, six years. We're able to see the high level contacts that took place. What we had not been able to see until these Uber files was the backroom contacts within the company as to what they were actually saying they were trying to do. And so what the Uber files have done is really pull the curtain back on this behind the scenes lobbying, the behind the scenes motives that were going on. So for example, uh, at one point, uh, Uber was getting very, very frustrated with the regulator. They got kind of indication very early on that the Uber business model just wouldn't fly where they have a regulated taxi sector. And at the early stages, uh, Uber was saying internally, we've reached a block with the regulator. We need to get government figures to lean on them and to do more to get to break into the market. And so the files in 2015, for example, show that the, 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 the idea that they would get political leverage on the government. And then in actually as early as, as mid-2014, one of the Uber executives was getting frustrated with the taxi regulators. This is, this is Mark McGann himself. McGann was saying, I need contact details and names for people in the IDA. The IDA is the state investment agency, very favorable to multinationals. McGann was saying, I need the names and numbers of people in the IDA so they can lean on the regulator. So this is a clear attempt by Uber within Uber to say we need to put more pressure on the system to try and open things up. But a central figure in all of this and all of the lobbying efforts by the company was John Morn. He's the former secretary general of the Department of Finance. Now, he left the Department of Finance in 2014 after two years in that role. He had his cooling off period. And then he set up a company called RHH International, which lobbied for Uber from, from uh, 2015 to 2017. And he really was trying to present, he was presenting himself as someone who could open doors for Uber, who could get access. So, for example, he said at one point, as we've seen from internal records and emails that were sent within uh, amongst Uber executives uh, by John Morn, he said, I can, I'm going to be having lunch with Frances Fitzgerald, the Minister for Justice. I can hand a document to her one day, and that's an opportunity to get access to her. And then prior to the opening of a, of a Limerick service centre in early 2016, he told Uber executives, if needs be, he could drop a separate note uh, from the company into Michael Noonan, the then Minister for Finance, into his home in Limerick without it forming part of the official departmental records. And he even suggested a couple of pubs that Michael Noonan frequented in Limerick if needs be. Now, I put this to Noonan and uh, Michael Noonan said John Moran might have said that, uh, said these things within Uber and to Uber, but he never did them. Um, and I asked John Moran about some of the stuff that he was doing as well, put all the various interactions to him. And he said in one statement to me, he said he's very happy to have been asked by Uber to play his part to help them try and modernise Ireland's taxi industry. So it's very interesting some of the context that took place between Uber and government at this time. Mm. Um, is Limerick significant given Noonan, do you think? Well, I think it is. And it is clear from the communications that we've seen that they, they felt they would be pushing a door here to try and get into Ireland if they set up in one of the regions. Yes, there's the Limerick connection. John Moran is from Limerick. Michael Noonan it was his constituency at the time. 
Um, and certainly the communications within lobby amongst the lobbyists that were working for Uber, they said that would play well, you know, where you're looking to get political leverage that would play well both locally and nationally. And one uh, lobbyist who was working for Uber at the time said the fact that the Taoiseach at the time, Enda Kenny, is from County Mayo, the fact that you're opening up the centre in Limerick will play well. And Uber were making significant inroads into the Irish market. They were creating a lot of jobs, initially about 150 in Limerick, since risen to 300 or so. And, and so, yeah, they're making a big mark in Ireland. So they felt that, well, we're putting money and jobs into this country. Uh, hopefully this will uh, push the door open and allow us to get our business model in. Uh, and might have an effect on government to, to make government change the regulations to allow Uber to become a more significant operator uh, in Ireland and to loosen the taxi rules so that it could run its business model as it does in other countries in Ireland. It wasn't just money or jobs, of course, that they were um, trying to drop into Ireland. It was also language, right? It was also wording. Tell me the significance of Finnegal's election manifesto that preceded 2016. Well, a key part of the effort and the timing again of the lobbying being so intensive in the run up to the February 2016 general election, it coincided with all this expansion that Uber was doing. And what Uber was keen to do was, was to get language into the Finnegal manifesto for that general election in February 2016 that would be supportive of this so-called sharing economy, the gig economy, which was the buzzword at the time. You, you know, you had the likes of Airbnb and Uber, uh, all these new technology-driven businesses that were changing markets and forcing uh, company, uh, forcing governments to look at their regulations. So for Uber, it was critical that they would get some supportive language from Fine Gael into its election literature. And so what happened was John Morn, uh, working for Uber, um, at the time contacted Andrew McDool. Andrew McDool was economic advisor to the then Taoiseach Enda Kenny, and he has we have seen internal uh, Uber records which show him effectively boasting or, or quite proud of the fact that he's managed to get supportive text about the sharing economy into that manifesto. And he does say in internal records records to um, Uber executives, you'll recognize the text is what he says about the Fine Gael manifesto. And elsewhere in some of the records we've seen, the company has said that it managed to get uh, the text it supplied uh, to the government into that manifesto. Um, and that raises all sorts of questions. I mean, Fine Gael have defended this the fact that they did this. They've also defended the fact that, you know, their lobbying is part of, of a democracy. You know, everyone from uh, local community groups uh, right up to big corporations and multinationals and everything in between can lobby government. So they have uh, a say in what how our democracy operates and they can have a say in policy. Fine Gael has said some of these ideas become policy, some don't. And in this case, Uber's uh, pushing of the sharing economy did get into the manifesto. And Fine Gael has said, well, we were seeing at the time that uh, cab hailing companies were doing positive things at that time and we were supportive of that time. And so we were happy to include it in the manifesto at that time. What we didn't know until now was where this text came from. Um, and that isn't reflected in any of the lobbying returns that were filed at the time or since then. Right. So this is key because, you know, every journalist spends at least seven to eight percent of their life on the lobbying register, seeing who, who's meeting who. Um, but there is kind of a broad sense, I think, um, that 
all of like, first of all, lobbying, the definitions of it can be quite loose, I think. And, and the other thing is there are so many interactions that are not categorized as lobbying that aren't registered. Yet we know in this case that they have uh, an, an outcome, right? They have an, an, an outcome for the corporation involved. So what was stuff happening off the books? Off the re- was stuff not being registered? Well, I think what you have are two things. On one hand, you have everything that's been declared so far publicly on the lobbying register in lobbying returns. That's there and it's been there since 2016. And so we can look at that. And now what we have seen through the Uber files is the internal records and details of the intensive contacts uh, between Uber or John Moran working for Uber and on the other side, government figures, civil servants. And if you look at the lobbying returns, which, as you say, many journalists look at on a regular basis, it's very high level stuff. It's very general. It's very just summary. It's this this person was working for this company. They contacted the following officials, ministers, whatever, county council officials. And there's usually a one or two line summary as to what they were doing. To be fair to Uber and to John Moran, they did disclose that they were doing this. So, yes, they did disclose that there were contacts with various government ministers. However, there are gaps for a number of uh, of individuals, for example, some of the uh, some of the lobbying by John Moran to his company RHH of um, Michael Noonan, specifically relating to Uber business in early 2016. The contacts with Francis Fitzgerald, the then Minister for Justice, in late 2015, and contacts that John Moran had with Graham Doyle, who was a very senior civil servant in the Department of Transport, they're not recorded. Uh, they, they they were not disclosed in those lobbying returns, and then Uber's own lobbying of then. Thishuk and Kenny is not in those returns. So there are gaps between the two, two sets of files that we have, the lobbying returns on one hand and the Uber files on the other. And I asked John Moran about this. I pointed this out to him and said, well, these contacts haven't been disclosed. And he said, I think anyone who looks at the lobbying register will show that I fully disclosed my role. He said that. And he also has then cited there are some exemptions. So if you're providing factual information, for example, to officials or government ministers or implementation matters, there are exemptions. So you don't have to disclose those. And he has said that. However, he's also said that if I'm found to have some records that are incorrect and the regulator finds that on their perusal of those, then I'm happy to correct that. So um, he has said those things about those records. The fact that we have the Uber files now allows us journalists to go and scrutinize exactly what the company was doing and whether they do in fact match the public records that should be disclosed around activities by a company at that time. An entity that, um, you know, is, is not made up of elected officials, um, but yet has huge influence um, in so many facets of uh the FDI of actually of, of, of our of our society when the impacts of, of various um, investments and so on uh, trickle down, shall we say, um, is the IDA. How accountable is the IDA? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I think the IDA is kind of like Ireland Inc.'s PR agency. It goes out there, it makes the case for Ireland to big business, the corporate world, the global uh, global business community saying Ireland is a good place to do business. Um, and it is interesting when I did ask IDA about, you know, we see here that Uber is saying that they leaned on you. You know, did you contact the regulator after they contacted you? And uh, IDA has said they don't comment specifically on client matters, but they do con- they do speak to multinationals about what's on offer in Ireland and the, the, the business environment in Ireland. I, I definitely think there could be more 
uh, disclosure by IDA as to what they are telling multinationals. And there's a lot that's commercially sensitive. We get here those that term quite a bit when we go asking questions of the IDA. Uh, there are very uh, big um, announcements around jobs that are created by multinationals, but it would be very interesting to see if we could get behind the commercial sensitivities uh, that uh, covers these communications with these multinationals to see what exactly has been said to them, what exactly has been promised to them, what's been said about uh, uh, promoting Ireland in the communications with these big companies. And I think that's absolutely critical at the moment because these papers, these Uber files are particularly relevant coming a week after the Department of Finance came out last week with the summer economic statement. And they said, they pointed to the power that the multinationals have in this country. One euro in every eight euro collected in tax comes from just 10 companies, which is an extraordinary concentration of power for a multinational sector for a country, uh, facing a country. And so I think the Uber files have shown that this is a big multinational. It's a 40 billion euro company. It's in many, many different countries. It wields great power. Uh, and I think it's very important in the context that Ireland relies very heavily on a multinational sector, that we have greater transparency around what our policymakers are being told by these multinationals, what's being sought by these multinationals. Like for example, you have the American Chamber of Commerce in Ireland, now a very powerful entity in this country, given how important the multinational sector is. So I think there needs to be far greater transparency around the communications between government and state on one side and the multinational sector on the other. Mm. And of course, everybody knows that in terms of um, the internal lobbyists in, in, in tech companies, which is called public policy, you know, there's a, a direct pipeline there um, in Ireland from, you know, political advisors uh, to department officials um, who end up working uh, in, uh, in, in lobbying, essentially, for, for tech companies. Well, that's a good point. And Mark McGann referred to that in his interview yesterday with The Guardian. You know, he talked about having unprecedented access to heads and members of government, heads of state. And he describes that whole interaction as intoxicating. He was saying at the time that he was working for Uber 2014, 2016, Uber was the hottest ticket in town in the tech world and in the wider business world. And he said that both on the investor side, the money side, and on the political side, the power side, people were almost falling over themselves in order to meet Uber and to hear what we had to offer. So it's extraordinary. If you think of lobbying as a kind of transaction that takes place between two parties, I suppose the question that the Uber files raises, do we have oversight over both those parties? Do we have an understanding of what actually is said between those parties and to have greater transparency between those parties to know what's been communicated and what's been demanded in that relationship. Mm, and this is so um, particular to Ireland as well, given um, how many of the um, EMEA headquarters are, are here of tech companies. And I think we've all witnessed firsthand the kind of wide-eyed um, enthusiasm at this kind of glamour <laughs> element of um, big tech that it, that it seems to hold in Irish society for politicians. They want to be around companies that are deemed to be like, you know, shiny and, and new and almost celebrity companies in a way um, and, and how that makes them look in terms of their proximity to quote unquote innovation and things like that. You know, I think that that's that's a real that has been such a massive PR win for for big tech companies um, globally. I think um, 
so yeah, it's it's it's, it's certainly um, a curious one. Um, let's talk about uh, briefly the implications in other countries. I can hear your multiple mails uh, coming through <laughs> through there. So you're obviously pretty busy. I'll let you off in a second. Macron comes off so badly in all of this. Tell me about the French context. We all remember the taxi protests and, and, and riots and so on. Yeah, I think Macron's involvement is very interesting in this story. Uh, it focuses on his time as economy minister in France before he became French president. But it shows kind of his early enthusiasm for Uber. And he was, you know, he kind of felt, you know, he was kind of absolute in his representations. And he made no secret of his ambition to embrace, you know, this digital economy to shake up France's labor market. And, uh, you know, Uber was a way of doing that. He wanted to kind of create France's startup nation and kind of Uber was a way to showcase that. And he went to extraordinary lengths to help Uber to disrupt France's taxi industry. You know, he told the company at one point that he had brokered a special deal for it with its opponents in the French cabinet. And the, the Uber files show some very, very close contacts with the firm when he was uh, economy minister. I mean, some of the some of the communications that he sent uh, you know, show a very, very cozy relationship with Macron. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Uber had an extremely close ally in Macron. And indeed, Mark McGann's own relationship with Macron was very close. Um, McGann made personal political contributions to Macron's presidential campaign in 2017. So they were very, very close. There's photos of the two together. And uh, that was a relationship that McGann used to push Uber's interests. Lobbying and particularly uh, tech lobbying often feels to me like a similar trajectory uh, of like misinformation or disinformation. It can start off as one thing and then people that you may not have directly um, lobbied or you know influenced end up kind of parroting or taking on the initial kind of friendlier conditions that you sought to create and I think that we can kind of see um, a perspective that is quite friendly towards certain types of tech companies even though we know the real life consequences for various sectors trickle down um, through Irish politics I think I'm, I'm thinking of Leo Varadkar's statement um, or remarks last month that, you know, we should look at liberalizing um, the the taxi uh, sector. And, and he mentioned Uber and he mentioned Lyft. There's, I've been looking through um, kind of Iraq, this um, debates, things that were mentioned in the Dole, um, Frank Fien saying, you know, outright Uber is the future, all this kind of stuff. You know, perhaps these are personal opinions, absolutely. And people are entitled to those. But when you actually look at, how all this lobbying is happening and then you have politicians coming out saying particular things I think it makes people very cynical does it not I mean you know it makes people uh, lean into these narratives that like people are bought and there's too much influence and they're all cozy and all that kind of stuff this kind of stuff is quite bad for you know people's perceptions of of democracy and and transparency and accountability in 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 politics isn't it well, I think this is what Mark McGann is getting at. This is his motivation in becoming whistleblower and coming forward and leaking all these files. He was on one side of the fence pushing Uber's agenda, saying, you know, this is an amazing new business model. This is the way of the future, this gig economy. People can choose the hours they want to work. They don't have to work all the time. Uh, you know, it empowers people to be their own bosses, that kind of thing. And he's coming out now and saying, you know, we sold people a lie. That's not true. Um, the economic benefits to a driver 
uh, or to the public in general from the gig economy just isn't there. And, you know, he's this buyer's remorse now. Um, he's, he, he, he felt, you know, look, we, we, we tried to persuade governments, ministers, prime ministers, presidents, drivers, that this was the way of the future. And he's saying, you know, this was horribly wrong and untrue. And he feels it's incumbent on now to go back and say, I think we made a mistake. And he wants to play this role in correcting this mistake as being whistleblower. So I think, you know, there's an element of be careful what you wish for. Like I've used Uber in many countries. I was in the US for four years. Uber is an extraordinary business. You know, you flick on your phone, you can have a cab in San Francisco within meters uh, and get a lift across the city with a private driver for buttons in terms of what you're paying on your fare. But what's that doing uh, to the wider uh, transport industry in California? Um, it's undercutting established uh, uh, taxi drivers, taxi businesses. Uh, regulations exist in the taxi business to protect drivers, so uh, to protect customers and passengers, to make sure taxi drivers are using roadworthy vehicles, making sure there's no uh, nobody using a cab or using a car that has a criminal record or issues in their past that could put a passenger in jeopardy. Rules and regulations are in there for a reason. But what Uber tried to do is run roughshod over that and say, well, we have this brand new spanking shiny business model. This is the way of the future. And Mark McGann, the man who was selling that message across Europe is saying, mm -mm, there's problems here. This is not what we said it was and we need to set the record straight. And so I think while um, cab hailing on new forms of technology, uh, for example, Airbnb, uh, we're seeing what that's doing in the housing market currently in Ireland. You know, Airbnb sounds like on paper, and I've used Airbnb, it's, it's a remarkable business, but it's contributed to a major problem in the housing sector and supply in Ireland. So there's another example of a new technology and a new type of business model that has caused major problems in other area policy. So again, I think you need to be careful what you wish for here. You need to scrutinize the impact that these businesses have right across the board. And when you have a major multinational screaming, albeit privately in your ear, that this is the future and in the ears of many different people, government ministers, Tishig, uh, you, need to, you need to question what these business models will bring and the consequences of agreeing it. So, uh, it might be a kind of easy win or an easy solution on paper to say, oh, well, we have a taxi shortage, let's get Uber in here. I think we have to be extremely careful about what that means. And I'd be, I'd be very interested to hear currently what the taxi regulator, the National Transport Authority, thinks about Liv Radker's idea that maybe Uber and Lyft are, are a solution to the taxi shortages. Final question, Simon. Thanks so much for your time and your expertise and all the insight on this. Do you get a Pandora's box vibe um, with these kind of stories? Loads of people have been talking for a long time about the influence of big tech in the Irish political sphere. We know the context uh, for that um, because of Dublin in particular. Uh, it's rather unique in, in European terms uh, with the concentration of tech companies here. We know that there have been various um, smiley, clappy relationships um, between politicians and tech companies very publicly. Uh, you're going through these Uber files. There's been people from Facebook up in the Rockus committees, you know, all this kind of stuff. Is, is this the tip of the iceberg, do you feel? I, when I look at these kind of stories, and I mean, it's the first time in my 20 plus years in journalism that I've seen a leak of this scale, which shows 
uh, a US multinational and the efforts internally within that organization to push its case with government and state officials. But anytime I see something like this, I kind of go, well, what, what, are, what else are we not seeing? What else are we not hearing about what's going on in the background? And Mark McGann has done a huge public service in becoming a whistleblower and leaking these files to allow us peek behind that curtain. I just wonder what else is going on behind other curtains. Um, and as I said, the multinational sector is so powerful and influential in this country in terms of the tax stick. We're so reliant on it, not just in terms of direct corporate taxes, but all of the income taxes that we collect from the employees, both directly employed by the multinationals and indirectly employed by companies and businesses that service those multinationals. So it makes me think what, what else is out there that we don't know? What other pressures are being brought to bear on government currently and over in the past, in the past number of years? Um, but the one thing I would say, which is a positive, and I think Ireland stands out in a positive way in this whole Uberfile story is, is that the regulator worked, the regulator system worked in this regard. It showed we had an independent regulator, despite all the pressure that Uber tried to bring on government, on ministers, on officials, all of the coffee, lunches, meetings, back channel meetings, you know, all of the talk about dropping notes in, in the doors of, of ministers' homes. Uh, it showed that the regulator remained independent. Uh, it stuck to its guns and said early on, listen, this, the, the Uber got all indications that the regulator wasn't returning on this. And then almost two years later, the regulators confirmed, officially said, sorry, uh, it won't work. We can't have a regulated taxi industry and an unregulated Uber cab hailing service run by private drivers and this technology company. So in this respect, I think Ireland has shown that, yeah, our our checks and balances work. We can have lobbying, an important part of democracy, as long as it's fully transparent and everything is disclosed. But also the regulatory system has shown that it does work. Um, so I think Ireland kind of stands out a little bit in this international story as being a place where, yeah, business does try and make its case, but we do have systems in place to make sure the, the right questions are asked and answered. Great point. And um, a lesson about the importance of independent and uh, strong uh, regulation and oversight there. Simon Carswell, the public editor of the Irish Times. Uh, he's been publishing these stories with Arthur Beasley. You can read them in print with irishtimes.com on the Uber files. They are fascinating and I'm sure there is more to come. Keep up the great work, Simon. Thanks, Una.